Well, as Lauren said just seconds ago, this is Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday. Um, I grew up hearing it Palm Sunday, um, and then when I became Presbyterian, didn't hear about it at all. But then when I did, it was called Passion Sunday. And, I, and what's interesting is uh, for the people who like to focus on uh, the way that uh, people responded to Christ uh, in this triumphal entry with the waving of palms and singing his praise, they like to, they like to call it Palm Sunday. Uh, for the good Presbyterians that want to focus on the suffering that's coming to Christ, they like to call it Passion Sunday. Um, and as usual, it's, I'm thinking, well, I don't think we really have to choose between the two. Uh, both are, are equally true, and holding both together uh, is extremely uh, important for us in understanding not only the significance of, of who Christ did and, and what he did and the atmosphere in which he did it, but it helps us in understand who we are and how we are to carry on that mission of Christ within the atmosphere that we have. And so the title of the sermon this morning is Grace Covenant, Mission Amidst Enemies and Rejection. We're going to look at Luke 19, the passage on the triumphal entry uh, that you find in Luke 19. Uh, but the triumphal entry is one of those events that's actually recorded in all four Gospels. Uh, there, there are a handful of these uh, really important events that focus on this. So Luke 19, you can also later today read from Matthew 21, Mark 11, or John 12, all of them having this event of this triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Luke 19, beginning in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. 
Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for your faithfulness in fulfilling your promises. A promise made in Zechariah 9, a promise that went back to Genesis 3.15, a promise that was based upon your will, decided upon before the foundations of the world, that you would have a people for yourself. And in order to have that people, you would send us a suffering king. And so we do praise you today for the faithfulness to your promises, promises not just made in the past, but the reality of which still have power for us in the present. And so help us to receive and stand upon the fulfillment of your promises as they have been made, yes, in Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Palm Sunday is often referred to as the first day of, of what is called either the Passion Week or the Holy Week, um, or the, the last week of, of Jesus' earthly ministry leading up to the cross. It is, it is a week uh, that is filled with many different events as Christ anticipates one day after the next what is coming as he anticipates going to the cross. Because Jesus was not caught off guard, he was not caught by surprise with the events that would unfold in this week leading up to his hanging on the cross for his people. This had always been the intent going at least back to the fall in the garden where we looked at weeks ago as that fall took place and as God's people sided with the serpent over siding with him. And, and through the implementation of a, a meal that was contrary to God's presence and his purposes, uh, humanity fell into the estate of sin and misery. And God in his grace and in his mercy and in his unfailing love made a covenant saying, I'm not going to leave you in that estate. I'm going to send you a champion and he is going to suffer in the midst of accomplishing my purposes for you. And he will be ultimately victorious, but he is going to be struck down within that process. Well, throughout the Old Covenant, there is this ongoing unfolding of Genesis 3.15. And as it becomes more and more specific, and as it gets narrowed more and more to this coming king who will come in behalf of the name of Yahweh, and as we enter into the passage here with the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, what we are seeing here is nothing less than the materialization of, of, of the very end 
of God's purposes in making you and me his children by providing us a champion. And the champion comes as one who has multiple seemingly conflicting descriptions as he is a king who is righteous, who brings deliverance, but not on a white stallion, on a donkey. One who is humble in his presentation. It's hard for us at times to wrap our hearts around this dual description of Jesus Christ. And it was no less difficult for God's people living at the time in which Jesus came. And we'll see that in this text. The emphasis here is that the long-promised champion who we later find out is going to be a king, the king is here. But I want you to remember that the presence of the king here is not merely about the royal presence. It is about mission. The reason Christ is here and he is being revealed in this way goes all the way back to that heart that God had of not leaving us in the estate of sin and misery and going on mission and sending his son as that ultimate expression of God's missionary heart. And so what we have here in the entry of Jesus Christ is the revelation not just of the king, we have the revelation of the missionary king. Jesus is God's missionary. And he has come to fulfill that mission. And so this is just as much a text about mission as it is about the royal revelation of Jesus as the Messiah. Messiah and mission have always gone hand in glove. And that is why for us as a church where we can be tempted to read this text in such a way that, that, we, that we separate ourselves from the events of that's what's happening is we, we want to see this in its proper context that this is not only about Jesus as God's missionary, this is also about us as God's people, as participants in his mission. Now, Jesus is revealed here very clearly as the king that is promised in Zechariah 9. In Zechariah, you have this series of unfolding visions because the people of God have rejected the covenant. The people of God have fallen into idolatry, and as a result, the Lord is going to bring the curses of the covenant against his people, which includes them being removed from the land, 
being removed from the temple, being removed from blessing, and instead being transported out of their land, away from the temple, into cursing. And so they will be taken into captivity in Babylon. And for those who do not actually physically go outside of the land, what the Lord does is bring enemies into the land. So that either whether you go or whether you stay, you are under the authority of foreign power. And this was hard for, for the Israelites to understand because they liked to remember the promises of God's covenant when it came to blessing. But they didn't like to remember the conditions for those blessings. And so what they wanted to be able to do is this. They wanted to be able to have Yahweh as their God. They wanted to be able to enjoy a nice earthly life of blessing. But they didn't actually want to have to serve him. And so what they would do is they would go to temple and they would offer sacrifice. But then they would go and offer sacrifice to the foreign gods as well. The problem wasn't a lack of religion. The problem was that they were overly religious. And they were hedging their bets by offering sacrifice to all the different gods rather than living as the missionary people of God who were to bring God's revelation to the nation. Instead, they had taken the nations, their values, their culture, their gods had taken them for themselves and were now trying to hold on to both the foreign realities as well as their identity as God's people. You can't do it. And so the Lord is going to judge. But even in the midst of revealing the judgment that is coming, he also reveals that there will be an end to that judgment and that what the Lord will do is re, he will relent after a time. And then in his grace and in his mercy, he's going to go into that foreign land, get his people and bring them back. And when you get into Zechariah 9, what you have is this amazing revelation of God's compassion, God's mercy, God's loving kindness. God is not, listen to me, He is not rejoicing over having to judge His people. He is heartbroken over it. And He says, but I'm, I'm going to see you and I'm going to see what you're going through and I'm going to come get you. Even in the midst of judgment, compassion, mercy, love. Now, in the unfolding of that prophecy, the promise is that God's going to come. He's going to bring his people out of the clutches of the foreign powers. And he's going to put the foreign powers down and exalt his people. And this is where it gets tricky. Because just like the Israelites liked to remember the really positive, fun, good stuff and forget the difficult stuff, they do that with Zechariah 9. In Zechariah 9, there is this compassionate, 
display of God that is revealed in the promise of a Savior who's going to come and he's going to be righteous and he's going to bring deliverance and the foreign nations are going to be put down. But he's going to come on a donkey. Humble. What the people of God were struggling to remember, and what you and I sometimes struggle to remember, is that though we long for a time where we are going to be freed from the presence of our enemies, right? Where we are longing to be freed from the presence of sin. Where we long to be freed from the presence of the way sin works itself out, not only in our own hearts, but how it works itself out in our fellowship. We especially long for that day where we will be freed from the presence of sin as it is expressing itself in a fallen world. And it is a good longing to have. But what we forget is that with Jesus coming in righteousness, it's not us and Jesus, the righteous ones, versus the unrighteous who are out in the world. You see... Paul reminds us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You and I naturally fit into the category of God's enemy that he should get rid of so that he doesn't have to put up with our rebellion anymore. But in his mercy and his grace, he calls rebellious sinners to himself. And he does this not by bringing a champion who will come and slay the wicked at the start of things because we would be slayed along with him. Instead, he comes in righteousness. He comes in deliverance. And the way that that looks in his initial appearance is humility, suffering, sacrificial death on behalf of others. The Pharisees could not wrap their minds around that kind of Messiah. To them, Messiah was military victory, going to come and pound the enemies, and we're going to be shown to be the better people that we always knew we were. But that is not how God can do it, because God is just. God is righteous. And so we have here, as an expression of God's missionary zeal and desire to have a people, he sends this king. And he sends this king who is righteous to bring salvation, but to do so through humility. And so he rides a donkey not a great war horse. The king enters. Jesus very specifically exercises his lordship in telling his disciples, go get this specific cult. And when the owner asks why you're doing it, tell them. Now in the Greek, it's hakurios. 
just means the Lord, right? But Kyrios is the word used to translate Yahweh throughout the Old Testament in the Greek version. What he is doing is exercising the lordship that is his, and he says to his disciples, go get it. And when they ask why you're getting it, tell them Yahweh has need of it. And so they give it. And Jesus, in beginning to fulfill Zechariah 9, they lay the the coats over this this donkey that has never even been sat on. And he exercises his lordship as the one who created that donkey by sitting on it and that donkey doing exactly what he is supposed to do. Now let that sit in because in moments from now we're going to see the importance of that. And so you have the appearance of the king and in result to the appearance and revelation of the king you have people who understand to some degree What is happening, even though we're told in the Gospel of John that they didn't really completely get it until later. But you have people who see what is happening and they respond. And they respond with words that come from Psalm 118 because the people that are responding are pilgrims who have come to Jerusalem in order to begin the celebration of Passover. And so, like the old covenant called for people to come from all over the country and to ascend the hill of the Lord there in Jerusalem and go to the temple and to offer sacrifice and to participate in the unfolding feasts that were coming, you have the devout coming to do that. And the devout see what is happening. And the devout respond with a psalm of ascension that, you would, that they, would have, they would have sung anyway as they were ascending the hill. And in the psalm that they choose is the psalm that is in response to the coming of the Lord, the coming of his king, where they herald that coming. So Jesus finds himself amidst worshipers, who acknowledge who he is. He finds himself among disciples who have been with him. He finds himself, by the way, according to John 12, among a whole multitude of disciples. So this is not the 12. This is a whole multitude of people who were following Jesus. And specifically, according to John 12, these are people who were present uh, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. They saw what he did, and they became followers of his. And so these are people that are devoutly following Jesus Christ. And so they respond with their worship. They respond by being together with him. They respond in in supporting his claim as they take it upon their lips and as they sing. And so you have this king seated on a donkey receiving praise as one who has come from the Lord to fulfill old covenant promises. He is righteous, he has salvation, but he is humble. He has the power 
to do exactly what Zechariah 9 says. He has the power to sweep in and crush his enemies. But instead, he comes in and willingly allows himself to be crushed for his enemies. See, a a savior that, that has strength, that has power, that is royal, is the kind of savior that you and I need because we cannot defend ourselves. We cannot stand up for ourselves when it comes to the righteousness of God. We have nothing to bring to to the argument between us and the Father. We can only come with all of our sin and say, you're right, I'm horrible and wicked. We need someone who is strong, who is powerful. We need a warrior, and that's what we have in Jesus Christ. But you and I also need a warrior who is merciful and compassionate because you and I need his compassion as much as we need his power. We want him to have the power to deal with things, but we also want him to have the compassion to be willing to deal with those things for us instead of against us. And that's what we have in Jesus Christ. Power under control. Power used on behalf of others. That's what meekness is. He is a meek king. He is one in whom all the power of the Godhead resides, and yet he is meek, he is compassionate, he is humble. And what happens is that we see that not only is this king who is, who is at the same time powerful and yet also humble, we see he's not only surrounded by those who see who he is revealing himself to be and they respond with praise. He also finds himself surrounded by those who reject In John, or I'm sorry, in, um, I think it's Mark or Matthew, one of them, um, it is clear that you have Jesus, you have his disciples, which include not only the 12, but all of the host of those who are responding to him in praise, but then you also have the whole city. And you have the crowd, which is the disciples, and you have the whole city. And the whole city, we are told, is turned upside down, and they get upset. Well, who is this guy? And so you have those who are supporting, you have those who are against. And then within our text here in Luke 19, you very clearly see those who are against as the Pharisees rebuke the king. Now, you have to think really highly of yourself. You have to really assume a level of arrogance and pride when you reject the revelation of God's king and instead you tell him that he needs to stop what is happening. But that's what they do. They tell him to stop. And what Jesus says is, hey, if they did, the very stones would cry out. The point there is not that Jesus had to have someone worshiping him and and so the stones would do it. What he's saying is the stones get it and y'all don't. The donkey gets it. 
but y'all don't. The donkey who has never been sat on is doing exactly what I'm asking him to do in carrying me, in revealing me as king. You don't even have the understanding of the donkey. You don't even have the understanding of rocks. And so Jesus and the unfolding and the unveiling of who he is as the missionary king who has come in fulfillment of age after age after age worth of promises from God, the people who seem to have the best working knowledge of the text completely reject him. That is no surprise unless you've never read any of the Gospels. It is no surprise that the Pharisees would do that. I think the surprise is what comes in response. Because the king does not respond in being harsh, He doesn't respond um, like a warrior. What he does is that he looks over the city and he weeps. Of all the people who had had his promises for generation after generation, who should have responded in receiving him clearly as he was revealing himself in fulfillment of Zechariah 9, they continue to manifest their resistance to him. And his response is to weep because they do not utilize the things that make for peace. It's like their hearts don't even want peace. What their, what their heart wants is to be revealed and displayed as being better. What their hearts want is for the enemies, the Gentiles, to be crushed and for the Jews who are inherently so much more righteous and better to be revealed in the glory that was always theirs. What they don't want is a humble Savior who is going to suffer on behalf of his enemies in order to make them his children, especially if that means that they are coming from the nations. How do you and I respond to the challenges that we are experiencing right now? We have lost much of our cultural position. We have lost much of that ability to speak with authority to things and for people to even care what our positions are, let alone to acknowledge them. How do we respond? 
as the missionary people who are called and privileged to continue this process of revealing the the humble king who works righteousness on behalf of his enemies. How and in what posture are we taking in response to this? It would be so easy to want to defend the cultural ground that we have lost and to go on the war path when the calling for God's people at this time is not to be on that war path yet. Jesus could have come and he could have gone right into the war path and he would have been completely just in doing so. But he chose something different. He chose to come in mercy and grace and love because he knows that he is going to come as the divine warrior. He is going to come in Revelation as one mounted upon the white war stallion. He is going to come in military victory. He's going to come and he's going to put down his enemies. He's going to come and he's going to do those things. But he is patiently holding that off for a time in order to draw many from every tribe, tongue, and people into his kingdom. And so he patiently waits, and he patiently endures, and he continues to extend mercy and grace and compassion. And beloved, that's what you and I are supposed to be doing, manifesting his compassion, not our compassion even, Manifesting his compassion, his patience, his love, his mercy. We reveal these things because, beloved, those that we want to argue with, those who are wrong, those who are sinful, those who are promoting things that are contrary to truth, those who will pay for all of that, that is coming. And our posture is to have broken hearts over it not condemnation. You can hear in Jesus, as he said previously in Matthew, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And you can hear it again here. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Oh, I long to save you. I've longed to do these things. But you continue to rebel. You continue to be blind. You continue to be stubborn. And you reject. And his posture is compassion. His posture is a broken heart. Do you sense in Jesus Christ that longing of a sobbing Savior? Can you hear him days from now as sin is placed upon him on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do.
Beloved, you and I are a continuation of this work of the missionary king. And there is a time coming when that, that opportunity is going to run out. His patience will be brought to an end. And it will be time for him to initiate the final stage of salvation. And that is going to result in people being judged. It's going to result in an eternity in being separated from his love and receiving the fullness of his wrath. Our calling as a people who are named after the covenant of grace is not only to be a part of this mission, this mission of seeing some from every tribe, tongue, and nation come to know Jesus Christ. Our calling and our privilege is to participate in it in a way that reflects our missionary king who amidst enemies and rejection cried and extended a desire to see people know him. As we continue to try to be the people of God, what I would pray for us is that we could join our Savior in being able to say, Oh, Dallas. Oh, Dallas. Oh, Paulding County. Oh, Cobb County. Oh, how you reject the things that make for peace. Let us be broken along with our Savior in order that we can continue to reveal what these people need in a way that corresponds to how Jesus himself accomplished this mission. Beloved, we are a church of the covenant of grace God bound himself to us a long time ago to do this for us. In response, we are bound to join him. Even amidst enemies, even in the midst of rejection. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, apart from your grace, we would be nothing other than your enemies. We would be those who continue in the rebellion of our first parents. We would be those who would continue to choose to side with the serpent instead of with the Savior. But you have come knowing all of this and you have endured everything that was needed to be endured, even Enduring rejection, mocking, enemies, betrayal, death. And yet all of these, Lord, were your means of bringing about the salvation that we needed. Not that we deserved and not that we had a right to. And so this coming week, Lord, as we reflect upon the, the final days of Jesus before his death, help us, as Lauren prayed, 
to, to read and to saturate ourselves in the story of the text and to saturate ourselves in the beauty of your covenant grace so that we can not only rejoice for ourselves and think that you are here to empower us and to reveal us as being better than those who are outside these walls, but instead that we can associate just like Jesus associated with us in our fallenness, we can associate ourselves with those in their rebellion and in their rejection in order to reveal compassion. And so, Lord, as we discuss truth, help us to discuss it compassionately. And Lord, as we stand for truth, help us to do so compassionately. And Lord, as we find ourselves in difficult conversations over truth, help us to be the ones who make peace. Not by giving up truth, but like our Savior, who maintained that truth with a broken heart and with a compassionate stance. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.